Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Strung Out has been called brutally honest yet tender, an addiction memoir that doesn't ask for pity or forgiveness, one that challenges our preconceived ideas of what addiction looks like. Lydia Yuknovich has written, I knew I was in the company of a writer who is willing to take risks, who knows what it is like to need to take risks to get the story right. That makes what she is doing art. Erin Carr is known for her writing on addiction, recovery, mental health, relationships, parenting, infertility, and self-care. Her weekly advice column, Ask Erin, is published on Ravishly and brings in over 500,000 unique readers per month. Her personal essays have appeared in Self, Marie Claire, Esquire, Cosmopolitan, Good Housekeeping, Red Book, and others. She's the recipient of the Eric Hoffer Editor's Choice Prize, and her prize-winning essay was featured in the Best New Writing of 2012. She lives in New York City with her husband and two kids. Tonight in conversation with Erin, we're lucky to have Jennifer Pasteloff, who travels the world with her unique workshop on being human, a hybrid of yoga-related movement, writing, sharing aloud, letting the snot fly, and the occasional dance party. Jennifer is a frequent contributor to Shape Magazine, and she has been featured on Good Morning America, New York Magazine, Health Magazine, CBS News, and others for her unique style of teaching. Founder of the online magazine, The Manifest Station, Jen is based in Los Angeles with her husband and son and a cup of coffee. Let's have a warm welcome to Skylight Books and then Aaron Carr and Jennifer Pasteloff. joking earlier that this feels like that TV show, like This Is Your Life. <laughs> there are people here I haven't seen in 20 plus years. I, it's a trip. <laughs> but I'm so grateful to each and every one of you who showed up tonight. And, you know, I wouldn't be here without most of you. So thank you. So I think what we're going to do is I'm going to read a little bit from chapter one, and then we're going to talk a little bit, and then we're going to hear if anyone has any questions. So, Setting up what's happening in chapter one, I was 13 years old. It was 10 days after my 13th birthday. I had lied to my mom and told her I was going to a friend's house, but I was really at the house of a boy who I'd met earlier that year who was 16, whom I'd lied to and told I was 15. His parents weren't home. I was feeling nervous and reflecting back on that feeling of panic and the first time that I took an opiate. Then it jumps into the action of, the, of being at his house and the character's name is Ted. So now you're grounded in sort of like what I'm reading from. I had struggled with the urge to kill myself, to cut myself out of my own skin for many years. I remember at four and five and six thinking I could just jump out the window I could just get a knife and cut myself away. Whenever it got that I was feeling too much, that I didn't have enough body to contain everything humming under my skin, I faced that compulsion to annihilate myself, to stop and finally be still. 
When I was eight, after my parents had separated, I needed to do something about it. My dad had moved out, and my mother drifted from room to room in our old Spanish house with a weightlessness that I feared would take her away completely. I remember sitting in my room on my brass bed on a Saturday, picking at a scab on my knee. My mom was on the phone, her voice muffled and far away. A panic spread across my chest, filling my body with heat, trapping me. I ran to the bathroom and locked the door. As I reminded myself to breathe, some instinct led me to the medicine cabinet. I removed the band-aids and dental floss and the brown bottle of betadine. I shook the bottle of Tylenol and held it for a moment. I could take the whole bottle. I had tried it once before, but I didn't take enough. My parents didn't even know I'd done it. I saw a golden brown pill bottle on the top shelf next to the Pepto-Bismol. I held it in my hand, looking at the large red pills inside. It was Darvacet. My grandmother's name was on the label. It was expired. May cause drowsiness or dizziness, it read, next to the drawing of a man with droopy eyes and bubbles around his head. Yes, a voice inside that wanted to stop hurting urged me forward. I took a pill and put it in my mouth, gagging it down with gulps of water from the faucet. Back in my room, I pulled the world according to Garp out from underneath my pillow and read. It was one of many books I snatched from the shelves in the den when I couldn't sleep. After a little while, the heat in my body was replaced by the lightness of little bubbles, and I remembered the label on the pill bottle. I felt like I might just float right out of my body. It was the exit I desperately wanted. That's when I started looking for pill bottles in medicine cabinets, at friends' and family members' houses, and when I'd feel that heat, when the need to cut myself out of my own skin became too much, I'd take a pill that came from a bottle with a warning label. To avoid that empty feeling and to cover up sneaking pills, I pushed myself forward with straight A's and horseback riding and cheerleading and volleyball and filled my days with lots of friends and lots of chatter. If I just shine bright enough, no one will notice anything. But as the week following my 13th birthday wore on, I felt parts of me crumple and stay crumpled like a collapsing star, dead, unable to reignite. And I did want to shine. I wanted to be told I was smart and special and good. I wanted proof, external, tangible proof, that I wasn't broken, that I was deserving of love. My spirit was at war with the ways I was coping. I wanted to be seen as desperately as I needed to hide. Ted looked at me, narrowing his feline green eyes, and it made my stomach drop, made the crumpled parts of me bloom. He leaned in and kissed me, and I felt weightless. But underneath that weightlessness, some old wound pierced through, and it scared me. Unable to identify what it was or why Ted's hand resting on the side of my neck both thrilled and sickened me, I did my best to ignore it, whatever it was, letting it bang around and echo in some far-off edge of my memory. Let's go listen to music in my room, he said. He didn't wait for me to answer and led me down a long hallway, one wall taken up by a large window, the city lights twinkling below. I sat on his bed as he put on a Susie and the Banshees record. He stood in front of me and said, God, you're beautiful. Am I? I wondered if he thought my hair smelled like hay. He pulled me up and we stood in his room kissing. I loved that he was taller than me, that he had strong arms, strong hands, that it felt like he could crush me. But I sensed myself sinking and I needed something. I needed something to push away the heat that filled my body and the voice that said, you're broken and ugly and crazy and he'll find out and hate you. Can I use your bathroom? I asked. 
He pulled me in, kissed me, and without saying anything, led me, pushing me forward by my shoulders to his bathroom. I closed the door behind me and took a deep, shaky breath. Like the rest of the house, the bathroom was white and pristine, outfitted with marble and too many mirrors. It didn't look or feel like the bathroom of a 16-year-old guy. The mirrors came at me from every direction. I looked at myself and wondered what it was he saw. You are not beautiful. I opened the medicine cabinet and scanned the shelves for prescription bottles. There were none. My ears got hot. Do you want anything else to drink? A real drink, he asked when I was back in his room. No, that's okay. But I did want something. Do you have any Valium or Vicodin? He seemed surprised. He paused for a minute, then sat up. Have you ever done heroin? No. It's way better than pills. Do you have some? I asked. Yeah. Okay. That's how fast it happened. The decision seemed to make itself. I only knew about heroin from what I'd seen in the movies and read in books. I knew it got you to the kind of high that erased the world around you, and I wanted that, needed that, and that need superseded any rationale, any potential consequence. I wanted an exit door, and I thought heroin might be it. Yes, I want to get high. I want to feel anything else other than everything I have ever felt. From my seat on the floor, resting against the bed, I watched Ted as he sat at his desk and cooked the heroin in a spoon. It smelled sweet but nauseating, like coffee and shoe polish and sugar, all gone a little rotten. My heart was beating so fast as I offered him my arm. He had to give me my shot first before taking one himself. He wrapped a belt around my arm and told me to pump my fist as he felt the crook of my arm for the right spot, dabbing it with a small alcohol wipe. I love the way his hands feel. The needle went in with the slightest sting, and that moment happened, the moment the heroin hit my bloodstream for the first time. I tasted rubbing alcohol and a cloying sweetness in the back of my throat. Then the world dropped out from beneath me. Everything sped up, zoomed through me, and played back in slow motion. I saw him back at his desk, then closed my eyes, opened them, and felt his breath on my cheek, losing myself in the deep green pools of his eyes. I was walking underwater. I felt everything and nothing. I closed my eyes again. I opened my eyes, and he was floating through me. I let him take me, take my virginity in a flurry that blinded me like staring at the sun. There were no concrete sensations. It was all abstract, all outside me. The one thought that pulsed in the back of my mind was, somehow this is familiar. Somehow you were never a virgin. Susie sang, but oh, your city lies in dust, my friend, and she joined me underwater. I felt my life vacuumed up at that moment, sealed and put on a shelf somewhere far away where I couldn't see it, and I liked it. Disconnected from my body, disconnected from the room around me, I drifted. I drifted away from Ted, from the walls and the floor of his room. I felt I could spend an eternity like that, just drifting, where nobody could touch me because I remained in motion. Then, suddenly, I had motion sickness. I dropped out of the air and back into my body, and I knew I was going to be sick. I fell out of the bed and rushed, stumbling naked to the bathroom, making it just in time. I puked, I puked, and I puked, and I puked until there was nothing left. I lay on the cold marble floor and reminded myself to breathe. After what might have been two minutes or two hours, I got up, brushed my teeth with my finger, and put my mouth to the faucet, gulping down water, then went back to bed. Ted was nodded out. I climbed in next to him and let myself drift again, marveling at this distance I felt from myself. 
And just like that, heroin entered my life. Thank you, Erin. Um, hi, everyone. <laughs> the first thing I want to talk to you about is, um, or I want to acknowledge you for, is um, telling the truth and staying. I had a very similar line, if not the same line in my book, something to the effect of, I'm learning how to stay. And I just saw that again when I was sitting next door. And that's hard. So thank you. I want to talk to you about, um, your book came out Tuesday? Yes, yeah. a week ago. <laughs> a week ago. The longest and shortest week of your life. Yes. Right? <laughs> I want to talk to you about what it feels like to have a book come out amidst the panic that's going on in the world right now with coronavirus and the election and all the other stuff that's going on. What um, what does that mean for you? How are you feeling? How are you staying with all that? Well, the good thing is, is that I have learned in the 17 years since I was on drugs, <laughs> it's been 17 years, and in that time I have learned how to sit in my body and be uncomfortable, and be in pain, and stay, and not look for an exit. And it doesn't mean that I always enjoy it. And this week has been weird. It's been like the best week of my life, and also a really hard week, because at every turn, every airport, on the news, it's just, it feels like, oh, my book came out, and it's the end of the world, you know? <laughs> and that's a shitty feeling. But then at the same time, I go back to the reason that I wrote the book, and the reason that I'm coming to these events and connecting with people is because it matters. It matters that we tell these stories because there are people that aren't here anymore to tell them. Yeah, I know. And I, you know, I wrote a book called On Being Human. It's, it's in the window somewhere, but it's right there. <laughs> Thank you, Lauren. Um, so I'm always the most interested in our humanity and what makes us human. And that's why I started with that question because, you know, however many months farther along my book came out in June, so much came up with expectations, which, you know, you're not supposed to have. Yeah, right. Um, about the human normal people feelings that have come up, you know, after so much goes into making a book and then it's out there in the world and there's this, for me, I was like, where's my parade? <laughs> and uh, there wasn't one, you know? So I, I really wanted to start with that being where you are mm -hmm. right now. Um, I want to talk also about being a citizen. Mm -hmm. Yes, I stood in line for three and a half hours today to vote. But as far as a literary citizen, I, I can't think of anyone that's a greater literary citizen than you. And uh, do, do you know what that you. means? <laughs> you. <laughs> well, it's, um, you're up there with her, Lauren. Um, 
No, you are. It's it's this um, belief. I think it's a belief that there's enough. So you know, whenever there is someone with a book coming out or anything, Erin is the first to prop that person up, to share it, to talk about it, and you know, also donate. I mean, there's just constant. Um, even today, I think it was today or yesterday, you posted on Twitter about, I know my book just came out, or maybe it was last week, but here is what I'm reading this week. There's this constant giving back. Um, and I want to talk about how much that affected and went into your being able to write. I mean, this book. I wouldn't have been able to write this book without the support of my writing community. These are, there are people in this room, you being one of them, Lauren <laughs> being somebody that I have called when I have been panicking about whatever it was book related. Um, it's kind of like they compare it to having a child and I think that that is kind of true because you create something and then you're like pregnant for a long time and then you're stressing out like how's the labor going to be like is the bit you know will I be a good mom will I get sleep you know all these different things and it's not so dissimilar from a book right you're creating something and then it's going to be its own entity in the world absolutely absolutely and you won't have control over it right that's the thing like this is my story and I'm putting it out there and then I don't have control over it anymore. I don't have control over the way people talk about it. I don't have control over any of that. So having a writing community to lean on has been huge. Yeah. I wouldn't be here. I mean, there are, you know, Lydia Yuknovich wrote the introduction and so those early chapters were done in workshop with her. She taught me how to write from my body, not my brain how to sit and feel it. And that's like a gift, you know? I feel like, so yes, I wouldn't, I mean, I'm so grateful for my writing community and it's a big part of my life and I'm, you know, there is enough. There's always enough. And we, each one of us is an individual and I'm always happy to support any other artist, but especially writers. <laughs> it's just, it's really inspiring and important. And um I don't know. I think we, we all can really learn from that. And I, I just, I think it speaks volumes about about who you are. Um, so something that I do in my workshops a lot, which I think you've taken my workshop. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, is I ask you to write a letter in the voice of someone who loves you. So I... Um, I was either going to ask you that or what you'd say to your 16-year-old self. <clears throat> but I think what I want to do is ask you um, to say a couple sentences in the voice of your son who asked you, Mom, have you ever done drugs? Well, it took me a while to answer that question. And at the end of the book, I do talk about the conversation I had with him. And it was very scary you know, I didn't go into, like, great detail with him because he was just about to turn 13, and he thinks that I'm very uncool. <laughs> he was surprised, certainly, but the very first thing he did was hug me and say, I'm so sorry you went through that. And, like, <laughs> you know, like, since then, now he's, you know, been like, ugh. <laughs> but, but, <laughs> but that moment was really great, and, uh, you know, the biggest thing that I wanted him to know, and like any young person, 
Because when you're an adolescent, you think you're the only person that like ever feels like you want to die or, or or you feel so alone even if I you're still not, feel that way Does that, I mean, it's like, right even if you don't struggle with addiction when you're an adolescent you you know we have anxiety and hormones and depression and it can it's so lonely no matter how great your teenage years are they're fucking lonely and I think it's so important with young people that we're open about the struggles we had without asking them to tell us what struggles they may be having, to just share that, because it leaves the door open for them to know that they're not a freak for feeling that way. Right. And so I don't know if that really answered your question. Well, I think to, to put you less on the spot, but to still to put you on the spot, I think the way I'll rephrase it is to make it more general you don't even have to say who it is if you don't want, but if, I want you to pick someone right now who loves you, living or dead, and finish the sentence. Erin, if you could see what I'd see. You would know you're lovable. And I do know that now, but I didn't know that for a long time. Yeah. And there are so many people in this room, so many people at various stages in my life that loved me, that were there for me, when I was not that lovable. <laughs> You know, I mean, when I was in my worst moments and and there are people here that loved me and showed me support that probably don't even know what the impact was they had on me by I, just being kind. And I, I like I wouldn't I be, love that you're saying I that. wouldn't be here alive yeah. without so many of the people in this room. Yeah. And it's like it's amazing looking out and it's like a weird high school reunion of people that like saved me multiple times. And it's really cool. <laughs> It's beautiful. This is definitely the most emotional event I've had so far. <laughs> what was the hardest part, um, not necessarily of writing the book, I'm going to say of the whole process, aside from going through all the addiction, which <laughs> if that was the hardest part, maybe. Um, the writing it, the selling it, the the managing expectations, the um, vulnerability hangover, as Brene Brown would call mm -hmm. it, if you have any of that, I'm not sure. But what was the the, the part you're, if you're having any um, trouble staying right now, what would that be? Hmm. I mean, although it's emotional, like talking about it, it feels so good to connect with people yeah. and like I think that any art form you take any art form photography painting sculpting film music whatever it is I feel like the art that resonates with us it resonates with us because it reflects the experience of being human mm -hmm. and that's what we connect to so what a privilege it is to go and be able to talk about the book and like connect with a room full of people that's pretty Absolutely. cool <laughs> So that hasn't been, like, even though it's emotional and I feel tired afterwards, that hasn't been hard. I think, I think that the hardest part is, has been, like, the unreasonably cruel expectations yeah. I still put on myself for achievement. Yeah, same. You yeah. know, like, my book gets this, po like, positive review in the New York Times, and then, like, I'm depressed the next day because, like, I didn't go on fresh air. I mean, like, this is stupid. It's not like, I can't, I understand that, like, it's, it's, and it's all ego, right? But that's been the hardest part is sort of like, I don't have to, like, 
It doesn't have to like achieve everything all the time right now for it to be valuable. And it ha- and it has, you know, it, like this first week out has been amazing and I just need to like give myself a break. That's been the hardest, that's my life lesson is like always sort of like allowing myself to not be perfect. <laughs> yeah. Which is why I think the book is so great, not just for um, someone dealing with addiction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's really the underlying message. So another thing I do in my workshop, which I knew I'd ask you tonight, is um, I say give yourself a um, effing medal because no one else is going to. So if I, I want to actually end it with this so people can ask you their questions, but Erin Carr, what do you want to give yourself a fucking medal for? For staying. For not leaving. I knew you were going to make me cry. <laughs> you know, this... Um, this book is a is a gift to anyone. So whether or not you're an addict, um, it's really about. And even Lydia speaks about in the beginning about saving yourself. Mm-hmm. And I still struggle with wanting someone to save me or trying to save other people. Yes, anyone else? <laughs> um, even though I know. And so stories like this are so important, whether or not you struggle with addiction. Mm-hmm. And chances are, I know for a fact, we all know someone who, my father, that's how he died, Mm -hmm. you know. So in some way, um, it's such an important book. And I really hope that it's so easy from an an outside person looking in to say, you're doing great, everything's amazing, and we're so hard on ourselves to go easy. Mm -hmm. You know, so thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> um, I always found when the Q and A part, people would get nervous, and then finally someone raised their hand, and everyone raises their hand. So whoever wants to start, yeah, right, right. And I'm much better at it now, much better at it. But you know, like it's still. I'm harder on myself than anybody else, but I've gotten much better. (laughs) So I I know you've done a lot of therapy and a lot of work on yourself, but I was just wondering if in the process of writing the book itself, if something different feels different. Hmm. You know, I think the majority of the healing happened before the book because I don't think I could have written this book like even 10 years ago. Um, but I think that the, the gift that I got from writing it is that I have so much more compassion for myself than I did before I wrote this. That I, I think I still had some judgment of myself And now, like, I think of myself at 13, I have a lot of empathy for that girl. And 
it's always been very easy for me to have empathy and compassion for other people. And now I feel like I have, have it a lot more for myself. So that's the, like, it's in terms of like healing or like a gift from it. That's been nice. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, before when I had advanced copies, you know, I gave it to both of my parents and, and, you know, it wasn't easy for them to read this book. I have a really good relationship with both of them now and with my step parents. And this wasn't an easy read for them, you know, but our relationship is so good now. And like, they tell everyone about the book and everything like that's amazing. Because I think when, you know, when I when they when they, they first found out that I was using I had hit it I had been using off and on for a decade when they found out and uh, they were shocked and then like really didn't want people to know and then over the you know with time and things change and and it's a different world than it was when did I first try and get sober 1997 oh Jesus <laughs> yeah 23 years ago it's different now we do talk things we have language that we didn't have to talk about things then so um, yes my family has read the book and and uh, and we're all good <laughs> well I have two kids. I have a two-year-old and a 16-year-old. And, like, they're both challenging in different ways <laughs> emotionally. And I think, like, having, like, kids kind of, like, for – like, I didn't have the opportunity to even, like, take – I was just, like, doing, right? So, like, having stuff that I had to do, and I still had, like, my day job as managing editor of a website, and I was so busy that that helps. <laughs> and, you know, it's funny because – I wrote the book really fast. I mean, I had been working on chunks of it, but actually sitting down and writing it, I wrote it in three months. I got my book deal, and it was like they wanted an accelerated timeline, which still took 18 months from the time I signed a deal to the book coming out, but in publishing, that's fast. <laughs> so I wrote it in three months. The editing process, I felt, was more emotionally draining for me because those were the parts where I didn't have big developmental edits, but where my editor is like, I need you to stay in this scene a little bit longer. And those were like some of the scenes where there was like sexual assault or things like that. And I, staying in those moments a little longer was challenging. But I think that like the life that I have today really balanced that out. Mm. You know, and you're running around after a toddler. It's, 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 it's easy to come back to present time that way. <laughs> God, I don't know. You know, I had some childhood trauma. I didn't tell my parents about it. I was really good at hiding. I don't know. And I think that I also had, like, underlying depression and anxiety. So, like, yes, maybe if they had, like, you know, checked in and said, like, are, you know, are you really okay? But, like, it just – I didn't have, like, on the outside, like, I just didn't have the appearance that anything was wrong. In my teenage years, when I was volatile, were the times that I wasn't on drugs. That was when my, like, really, my parents sent me to therapy because I was just, like, woo, all over the place. And I was sober. <laughs> 
it was, you know, when I was on drugs, I was like very controlled. So I, it's, it's so hard to say, like, of course you could go back and if you, things were different, like maybe, um, but I don't know. There's certain things that I did that I regret when I was using um, in terms of the way it affected other people. Uh, but I, in terms of like the grand scheme of things, I don't know. Because now I'm like, I'm for a living, I'm a writer. And I combine that with this sort of like other purpose of like having written something that might actually help people. And I just feel like that, how did I get so lucky that like I have this career path that feels very meaningful to me. Um, so I don't, I don't know that I would change things, maybe individual things, but I think in the grand scheme of things, this is what I, this is how it was supposed to happen. <laughs> I always wrote, but I didn't see myself as a writer. I had a clothing line for a while, and then it was like 2008 happened, and like it just wasn't, I, I, I wasn't good at running a business, and it was failing, and I didn't want to do it anymore, and I kind of had to figure out what I wanted to do, and I was with a friend in New York, and she had a friend there who I'd never met who was a writer, and we started talking, and he was like, you know, I was at this point where I was like, I had just gone through a breakup. I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life. And he was like, I really think you should write. I don't know why I listened to a stranger, <laughs> but I had never finished school because of my using. And I was like, I'm going to go back to school. I'm going to study writing. And I did. And I started that blog. And another friend, some other friends of mine named it Rarely Wrong Aaron because you know, I was always giving advice to everyone, even when I was a total mess. And I started that Ask Aaron column, and like it grew and grew, and then landed on ravishly. So it's like it's 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 weird because it really happened in such an organic way. I would never, never would have predicted when I started that little blog spot in 2009 <laughs> that this would happen. There was somebody in my San Francisco event who started following me on my blog really early on and she I'd never met her in person she showed up at the event and it was so weird because we'd known each other from her like commenting on my blog in 2009 and she kind of kept in contact with me this whole time and that was so cool that's what I love about the internet like Whatever the bad things are, I don't care because I would not have the community that I have. I wouldn't have gotten back in contact with so many people if the internet didn't exist. Anyone else? No, I didn't really ever consider writing it as fiction. I think I had written some short stories that certainly were based on things that had happened in my life, but I think that I just kind of knew that I needed to tell this. I just knew that I needed to get it out.
Look, I mean, certainly the pharmaceutical company capitalized on the physiological process of addiction and lied about a lot of things. That said, one out of every 130 people gets addicted when they've been prescribed an opioid. So why not the other 129 people? There's a physiological difference in the people who become addicted and the people who don't. And that is because they are treating pain, they're treating emotional pain. So we can take, even if we eliminated all the pharmaceuticals, the core problems would still be there. I feel like there, it's very symptomatic of sort of like the health of the nation, right? It's, it's, in some ways, it's brought to light all of these underlying issues that people have and that we haven't supported. And that's why, you know, I, part of what I advocate for constantly is that, you know, addiction is a health issue. It's not a moral failing. And we need to constantly look at how to treat it the same way we would with any other health issue. If a cancer protocol isn't working, doctors will change the protocol and try something else. And we should be doing that with addiction as well. So in some ways, while it's contributed to the number of people who use opiates, I think that there were, those problems existed, those problems weren't necessarily created by the addiction. The addiction was sprung from those underlying mental health issues. I don't know if that answered your question. Right, no, I'm just going to suss it out a little bit for you. But you, so it's almost as if this predictive data that everybody would collect, they're, they're doing a deep dive uh, psychological study of everybody to assess. And it just seems what's the most dangerous aspect of all that is what is the most deeply compelling human response? Mm -hmm. Sure, but at the, I mean, I, I hear what you're saying. I can't fix that, but I can fix, I can't fix, but I can connect with people, connect with humans who are suffering from a human condition. Because addiction, take all of that out of it, it's still an experience that humans are having, right? So we could get into a whole political discussion about it's not. that. But, <laughs> but I think that, like, you know, that, 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 when we focus on treating humans, we help to eradicate that. Yeah, I mean, I think that a lot of us are, I mean, a lot of people experience loneliness. There is no human that does not experience loneliness because at the end of the day, we are alone. We are contained in this shell without another person inside there. And um, I think that 
that's why, like I was saying, that like when we talk like this, why, when we open up conversations that seem scary and uncomfortable and talking about addiction and talking about mental health can feel scary and uncomfortable, but when we do, we feel so much better because we are connecting with another human. And I think we can do that in person. I think we can do that online. You know, it doesn't all have to be bad online. We can certainly do that online. And that's, you know, that's what makes life feel good <laughs> is connecting. I think it's my personality. I've always, I mean, listen, like my mother <laughs> would tell you, like I, from the time I started talking, I never shut up. I was always a people person. And like, you know, I am a person, like I'm not a person that like, I love people. I love them. There are shitty people out there. But as a whole, I believe people are good. As a whole, I really love people. And so it feels very natural to champion other people because the whole time that I was like shitting on myself, I always loved everybody else, you know? It was always very easy for me to see the good in other people. Now I see the good in me too, but I think that that's always been in my nature. I've always had like a large friend group and felt, you know, happy around people. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yes, I have a couple of projects. Um, I don't know which one is going to be next. That's going to be a group decision. But I do have like at least at least two, maybe three other things that are in the works. <laughs> Mostly nonfiction, one fiction. I'm sure my parents would be thrilled for me to transfer <laughs> to fiction. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> So my agents and I worked on a book proposal and like a book proposal for non for like fiction you would submit an entire manuscript for nonfiction generally it's different for every agent but generally they sell them with a proposal which is like an 80 page document that has like an overview of the whole book marketing of the book sample chapters and a chapter breakdown so the chapter breakdown is read like a mini version of the book like in the voice of the book so that in a lot of ways the proposal was harder to write. It took me longer to write the proposal than it did to write the book. Same. But that proposal was my guide to writing the book. I knew exactly what the narrative arc was. I knew what the narrative arc within each chapter was. So when I sat down to write it, the reason that it came so quickly is all of that pre-writing. Um, I think that's good. I, I remembered one question. Oh, one thing I forgot to ask was about 
Shame. Oh, yeah. Um, so, especially with a book like this, you really have to make peace, I think, with shame mm-hmm. you have around, you know, being an addict or, um, you know, junkie. Mm-hmm. How did you finally... I don't want to say combat that because I'm sure sometimes there are moments or maybe there aren't. How did you deal with that? And what would you say to someone? Because there's so many people that ask, I have these stories to tell, but I have so much shame surrounding them or I'm afraid. What would you say? Well, I think everyone can relate to shame. I think that that is also a human experience Mm -hmm. and it sucks. (laughs) And, you know, I've said that like shame was my first drug. And it can feel very comfortable to feel shame. Of course. And it can be the DNA for the stories we have about ourselves and the foundation for the belief systems we carry about ourselves. And I realized, you know, after I had my son and I started opening up more, because even though people in my life at that point knew that I had been on drugs, you know, I was still on drugs when I got pregnant with him and I had to get off of them while pregnant. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know if I was gonna stay sober, I didn't know. I don't think my parents knew if I was gonna stay sober. And as I started opening up to the people who care about me more and more about the things that I had kind of minimized (laughs) or not told them, I realized that the shame that I had about them dissipated. It's always scarier to walk through the flames, you know, than it is to to um, sit in that room on fire, you know. But then once you do it, you realize that that shame dissipates. And now I really don't have the shame about this stuff. Mm-hmm. Are there things that I regret? A hundred percent for when I hurt people because of my using, for sure, that I lied to people. I regret that. I don't, like, I don't, you know, regret that, but I don't feel shame about it. And if people judge me for it, if someone's going to judge me for something I did 20 years ago, they want to carry that shame around, like, be my guest. (laughs) I'm happy to, like, (laughs) chuck it your way. I carried it for a long time, and I think that that is, like, there is a freedom from knowing that there is no skeleton anyone's going to pull out of your closet. I've joked that I should run for office because I would not have any political scandal because I've already told you everything. (laughs) So I think that there is a huge freedom from like, I don't, I'm not hiding anything that happened anymore. So there is a, that's what I tell people like that as scary as it feels when you are able to speak about it, it doesn't mean that you have to write a book and tell a room full of people, but just confiding in anyone really alleviates that shame. I couldn't agree more. Thank you. Thank you. Thank Thank you, you, everyone. Thank you, everyone. Hey, everyone, even if you have the book, consider buying something, anything, even, you know, a pencil, something to support independent bookstore. Yes. Yay. (laughs) You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by. 
and we hope to see you soon.